Hello, it's Kat. I'm kidnapping the show this week. Sorry, Katie and Dominic. Sorry, listeners. But uh, I had a really important question I wanted the answer to. And that question is, how the hell do you make an EU law? Um, Apparently, I have to start out by downloading an app. Game begin. All right, Rosa, where are we? <laughs> We're in Berg aan and it's the beach, <laughs> close to Alkmaar. What country are we in? Oh, we're in Holland. <laughs> Who are you? I'm Rosa, friend of Kat's. I'm here today with you to look for plastics. So we just got to the beach and we downloaded this app called Marine Litter Watch, which is made by the European Environmental Agency. And we're going to walk down the beach and document bits of plastic. That looks like a lid of some sort, isn't it? It's part of a cup. Oh, wow, this looks... Oh, that's sunny delight. Yeah. Rosa, what have you learned today? Um, that there's a variety of plastic on the beach. And that you just... Once you start looking for it, you can spot it everywhere. Hello. Cats, what the hell is going on? Yeah, when you said you were going to like teach us about how an EU law gets made, I didn't imagine it would involve tape of you rambling around on the beach. Well, I clearly wasn't just rambling at the beach, but uh, I should probably explain myself. To be fair, Dominic, we did send Cats away and just tell her to work out how EU laws get passed and get back to us. Yeah, you might have heard the last two episodes in our mini-series, Bursting the Bubble. The idea is to explain how the EU works without boring you to death. And this is episode three. We thought it would be a good idea to follow a single law as it actually gets made. I really like the idea of fun that we have on this podcast. (laughs) So fun. We had a bit of fun choosing which law we were going to look into, didn't we? What are the candidates? We thought about doing getting rid of mobile phone roaming charges because that was a super popular EU decision. What else was there? Like tobacco regulation? Oh, and there was a a law about chocolate, which was my personal fave. Mine too. But in the end, we decided to go with SUP, which is the single-use plastics directive. Um, That's the ban on things like coffee stirrers, plastic forks, and uh, my favourite plastic balloon sticks, which I don't think should exist anyway, um, which is due to come into force next year. Yeah, and so the reason me and Rosa were at the beach is because all of the data for that law was collected through... Through this app. And so me and Rosa wanted to check it out and have a go at influencing this directive. Aha. And when you talk about a directive, what is that? Yeah. So once we picked this plastics directive, I started looking into the different types of law. The most powerful type of EU law is a regulation, which means that once everyone in the EU agrees on it, it automatically becomes law across Europe and all EU countries immediately have to stick to them. And the second type of law is a directive. And what that means is that each country has to do what the law says, but they come up with their own strategy on how to reach that objective. And that means that all the countries have to ban the items listed and meet a bunch of goals. Uh There's a deadline. So in this case, 2021. 
What will be the punishment? Slap on the wrist. So they can be taken to court, actually, with the European Court of Justice, or they can pay fines. Okay, but the bottom line is, by 2021, or else. And then there are a bunch of other different types of law, like decisions, recommendations, but I think we've got enough technical words. So we're sticking to the plastics law. Who are the main characters that we're going to be meeting? Today we're going to talk about three main institutions. Uh, There's the European Commission, so that's what Ursula von der Leyen is president of now. You can shape your continent's destiny. There's the European Parliament. That's what we all voted for in May. And then there's a council. You've got a funny idea of characters, uh, cats. You've just listed <laughs> institutions. I was hoping that there might be like some fun, juicy, charismatic characters. But, but that's fine. We'll stick with the institutions for now. Cats thinks institutions are people. I've spent a lot of time reading documents. Okay. <laughs> I promise we will meet some people too, though. When people talk about the council, they mean the council of the EU. Yeah, we actually considered dedicating an entire episode of this series to working out why there are so many things in the EU that are called councils. But we decided that would probably not be a fun use of your time. How many councils are there in the EU? I'm not going to tell you how many councils are. There are way too many. But the main ones are the European Council, the Council of the EU, the Council of Europe. Oh my God. Yeah. But when people talk about the council, they're talking about this thing that is called the Council of the EU, I think. Exactly. And the reason we picked out the Commission, the Council and the Parliament is because they're the ones that create and approve laws. So in this episode, we're going to follow the directive through each institution and I'll explain what they do as we go. Sounds like a bundle of laughs. (laughs) Um, So the main characters are the Council, the Parliament and the Commission. Where do we begin? First up's the Commission. To start us off, I called up Sarah Nalen, who's from the European Commission. She was really involved in this directive. And I think she's really good at her job because when I spoke to her, she'd been given a fancy promotion in the new commission. Ooh. I'm a deputy head of cabinet of uh, Franz Timmerman. So dealing with the Green Deal and uh, climate issues as well. I wanted to go back to 2017, the very beginning of the directive. We already established it starts at the commission. But how does something even become a commission proposal? In this case... Well, it did get on the commission agenda because it did get on the agenda of many people in Europe. I think everybody as a consumer has become much more aware than, let's say, 10 years ago of uh, what the issues with plastics could be. We think of it as pure, but according to the World Health Organization, the water we drink comes with an added extra tiny, often microscopic fragments of plastic. Also movies around that, I think Blue Planet 2 uh, on BBC uh, in 2017 was also a big eye-opener. And if society cares, politicians care. While filming Blue Planet 2, the crews found plastic in every ocean. Literally everyone I spoke to mentioned Blue Planet. Someone also told me that a big factor was just kids coming home from school and telling their EU politician parents how upset they were about plastic pollution. So those kids might have something to do with how much consensus there was to get this law passed. That's amazing. I've never thought about how much power children of politicians have 
and therefore teachers of children, of politicians. This could be a really sneaky, clever way of lobbying. I know. Maybe we should all just go be Brussels teachers. That's the plan. Sarah says she remembers the conception moment of this law really clearly. Um, Her boss, Frans Timmermans, was the vice president of the commission at the time. He's the Dutch guy, yeah? Really good at giving speeches. Social Democrat. He was actually uh, attending an event. He came to speak to the staff, to the uh, civil servants working on environmental issues. And uh, just before he had to give his speech, he had a little uh, conversation, a little coffee with... uh, the director general in charge of environmental policies. And um, Mr. Timmerman said, um, look, we're doing a lot on plastics, but I still see a gap. Uh, There is this specific problem, single-use plastic. Can't you do still something, even if it's late in the uh, the commission's mandate? And then the director general, uh, he looked around to people of the team and uh, they were all uh, like, hmm, it's going to be... Tough and hard work, but of course, I mean, it's also a real opportunity. So what happens next? Did the commission kind of get to work together? Yeah, they have a whole environmental team that does research, and then they draw up a proposal with specific suggestions. But the commission can't actually create laws on its own. It can really only propose them. Legislation, which afterwards has to be negotiated with the European Parliament, and uh, with representatives of the national level, so the the council it's called. So this is the moment where the Commission's proposal gets pinged through all the EU computers and over to the co-legislators. That's the Parliament and the Council. (laughs) Co-legislators! Oh, you're really letting that Brussels lingo, aren't you? So that was the Commission. Now our little baby law is in the Parliament. Step two. We talked about the Parliament in episode one of this mini-series. That's the only body in the EU that we, the citizens of Europe, vote in directly. There are 705 members of Parliament. Until Friday there were 751, before Brexit. Oh. Okay, the remaining Parliament people, uh, I remember this from episode one. They basically works like a national Parliament, but on the European level. So you've got like all of the like right-wingers from across Europe hanging out together and all of the left-wing ones hanging out together and all the centrist ones hanging out together, that kind of thing? Yes. Yeah, and like everyone else, they mostly just have loads of meetings. Um, A lot of those meetings are about amending commission proposals. So once the parliament gets their hands on a new proposal, they go through it line by line and they make adjustments. Is there someone like in charge in the parliament for each law? Not yet, but that's the first thing that the parliament does. They have a meeting and they choose who's going to be the special rapporteur. Special rapporteur. They're basically the face of that proposal for the parliament. They do a bunch of research, they write down parliament amendments, stuff like that. And later on, they represent the parliament in all the negotiations with the other institutions. Sounds like a pretty powerful position. Yeah, so if you're the Greens and it's an environmental policy, then you really want to be the special rapporteur. How do they decide who gets to be in charge? They gamble. What? Eh? It's pretty exciting. Each group gets a number of points that correlate with their size, and they use these to bid on proposals like an auction. So who actually managed to win the special rapporteur job for for the plastics law? It was the Liberal Democrats, which is one of the biggest parties, Alde. (laughs) We love Alde. Why do you love Alde? Is it just because it sounds like Aldi? Sounds like a supermarket, yeah. (laughs) But they're not called Alde anymore. (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's the new, um, what are they called? They're called Renew Europe. Europe. (laughs) Anyway, Alde at the time, 
They chose Frederic Ries. She's a Belgian MEP, isn't she? Yeah, she is. So the parliament goes through the commission's proposal, tweaking it. And then Frederic works that into the parliament's version of the proposal. And then she goes to defend it in the meetings with the council and the commission. Got it. And if other groups want to be involved, they can put forward a shadow rapporteur, who is then part of Frederick Reese's team. I was uh, appointed from the Greens. That's Margarita Auken. She's a Danish MEP. And she knew this job really well because she was the special rapporteur for the Plastic Bags Directive in 2014. Oh, yeah. When we started having to pay for plastic bags in all the shops. And there we had a big fight with the commission because the commission was against that we did some anything mandatory they wanted. At the time, Franz Timmermans, the vice president, had argued that environmental things were not really an EU issue and instead that member states, the countries, should decide for themselves. But actually the council, so all of those national ministers, actually really liked the idea of this plastic bags law. So it went through. I remember myself meeting Timmermans, who was strongly against it. A Dutch friend sent me on the front page, plastic bag law has been a big success. And I, you know, when the next time I met him, da, 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 da. <laughs> and he was really the converted sinner. Oh, yeah. Besides being a green politician, Margaret also moonlights as a pastor in the Danish church. And then I'm a grandmother of eight children. All of these EU people seem to have loads of jobs. Like, How do they do it? God knows. We've all got loads of jobs too, Katie. That's very true. Hashtag multitasking. Anyway, stop interrupting. (laughs) Katz is trying to explain how a law gets through the EU. I am. So the parliament goes through each amendment, deciding what they want to accept, what they want to change. And you can watch all of these meetings online if you want to. I'd love to. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I spend my Saturdays. (laughs) Don't we all? Anyway, back to the plastics law, which is making its way through the parliament. This directive had a crazy level of consensus. It was like 560 people for and 35 against. And meanwhile, while the parliament's been doing all this, the council, so all the national ministers from our national governments, they're all having their own meetings. They're also discussing the whole legislation line by line. Only those meetings are private. So to find out more, I called up Vera Purerfellner. Vera Purerfellner? She was in the council's Austrian team. Who is in the council? What is the council? So there's obviously what we know is the summit, where all the heads of states meet, right? They have nothing to do with a concrete legal text. That's not what they do. Um, But then there are council formations, the environment um, council. You also have the agriculture council. You have the finance council and so on. You have 10 council formations. And then all the environment ministers meet. So 28 ministers meet and they discuss it on a more political level. Um, But when we read these headlines about ministers blaming the EU for stuff, actually, when you think about it, they are the EU because they've had a massive role in actually making this law. Of course. The EU is member states, it's the parliament, it's the commission, but of course, member states, they are involved in all those decisions. Okay, so back to single-use plastics. We've got all the environmental ministers in one room. So you go article through article and you try to find common ground. These council meetings are led by the president of the council. So the presidency is rotating and each country gets six months to be a president and then it moves on to the next country. 
So at the time of this directive, Austria was the president. And when you're the president, you're not acting as your country, as Austria, but you're acting as the president. So your goal really is to get it done. We don't actually know which country is voting for what at this stage. Oh, so it's quite secretive. Well, it's actually quite normal compared to like how national governments and minister meetings work. They've got lots of private minister meetings as well. That's true. But other institutions in the EU are actually way more public, especially the parliament. So, for example, I could look up every single paid and unpaid piece of professional work that Frederick Reese did while she was an MEP and a bunch of other fun facts, like how she voted on each proposal. Such a fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the democratic deficit in the EU is really to be identified that the council is working secret where we are working in the parliament transparent. That means national press cannot follow what their own government is doing. So even though the council does publish its voting records further down the line, at these early stages, I could see how it could definitely be more transparent in terms of knowing like what country is trying to push for what or whether those decisions were influenced by, I don't know, whether that government is really cosy with a powerful industry or whatever. Yes. And even though this directive was quite a smooth one, we don't know which country could be the reason that we didn't also ban plastic cups or plastic cigarette butts. And there could be a really good reason, like other cups are carcinogenic or super expensive or not more sustainable. But it could also just be like they're best friends with Marlboro and so they're not banning cigarettes. And we can't easily check. Still, at some point, the council has made all of its decisions on the single-use plastics. Then the presidency gets a mandate, which basically says, yes, presidency, please now negotiate with the parliament. This is our text. This is what we want. And now it's up to you. Please represent us well. So is everyone actually going to finally meet in the same place and, and talk about plastic straws? Yes, it's time for the trilogues. 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 You're confident in your position. You're well prepared. And then you um, you will meet your colleagues from the parliament and also from the commission. They all get together in some meeting room and imagine they've been preparing for months. They know loads of single-use plastics factoids. They could do an intensely competitive pub quiz instead. <laughs> they could. Actually, they usually take some like three years to prepare for these trilogues. But because all three institutions were pretty excited about this directive, it only took them eight months. As trilogues go, this is an exceptionally romantic story of collaboration. Yeah. I think my kids don't call it often uh, a nice romantic story. If they look at my working hours at the time, because it's a non-stop process. Uh, you're not living in or not working in your office, uh, but you're camping in the negotiation rooms uh, late at night. Is it fun? Yeah, it is. I love it because, you know, coming from a small country and suddenly see how much influence you can get. You have those huge tables and you're sitting on the opposite side and you talk through microphones because the other person is sitting, I don't know, 20 meters far away. It really feels like, uh, I don't know, like, like Romeo and Juliet. So you have those two parties. The council and the parliament. Um, we had three trialogues in total. They go through the night 
And the third one lasted until I think 6.30 in the morning. We were all incredibly exhausted, but it was also exciting. You have so much chocolate going on. I mean, it's a huge food hall. At one point, I think the other part even brought in pizza. And nobody was sitting there with a plastic bottle, of course. Everybody had their um, reusable, colorful coffee cups. And it was a beautiful uh, picture also to see that. Why does it take so long? They literally go through every single word of the proposal and check all the definitions and the loopholes. And they negotiate every word to make sure everyone's happy or at least content. When nobody's happy, it's a good deal. (laughs) Not entirely serious, but but it's true. Because that also means that you're having a good compromise, right? If one side is really, really happy and the other side is really, really unhappy, long term, that's not good. So what was the verdict? What actually ended up being in this law? Well, the bit that got most of the attention was all the things that got banned. Oh yeah, okay, I'm reading it now, so... It's those darn plastic straws. Cotton buds. Plastic fishing gear. Oxo-degradable plastics. Polystyrene cups. Uh, like coffee stirrers or drink stirrers, whatever. Sticks for balloons and plastic cutlery and plates. Why did they pick those specific things? A lot of the time people say they're the most commonly found pieces of litter with viable alternatives. Together, those items make up 60% of marine litter, so it's quite cool. But then, some things you wonder why they weren't included. I would have loved to get gas balloons to be forbid. But there, you know, especially the Germans were sure it would be the end of all children's birthday and all weddings if we didn't have balloons to come on. They were totally against. And they're actually missing the biggest single-use plastic. It's cigarette filters. What? I always forget that cigarette filters are plastic. That is so gross. Yeah, and they make up 40% of waste in the Mediterranean. 40% of entire waste? Yeah, that's what I read. That's insane. So why didn't they just ban them? Of course we should ban cigarettes, but that wouldn't be an easy task. You know, they're killing people and, uh, you know... know, The reports from the negotiations have these wild statistics, like... One cigarette butt poisons eight litres of water an hour, or if you put a cigarette in a fish tank, 50% of the fish die. But they didn't make it onto the ban list. They did make it required to label cigarette packages so people know they contain plastic, but a bit of a cop-out. Hey, neutral journalism, remember, cats? I mean, come on. Like One of the arguments was there wasn't a healthy replacement, but there were <laughs> these non-plastic filters would make cigarettes more carcinogenic. But who are we kidding? Like, let's keep burning these plastic filtered tar for everybody's health. So from talking to you about the stuff in general, cats, I know that you feel like the media has focused loads on the stuff that we've banned. But actually, there's a lot of other stuff going on in this law. Yeah, I think the reason the media focuses on the bans is because a bunch of the other stuff they talk about is really specific. So from 2020, all those little bottle lids like on soy milk or on Coca-Cola bottles there's going to be a requirement that they're all going to be attached to the bottle so they can never get lost. That's amazing. I want to Google designs of all what these new swanky lids attached to bottles are going to look like. Yeah, everyone I spoke to was intensely proud about that. So some cool things happened and some other things that should have happened didn't. And like there are these weird gaps, like somehow burger boxes were not deemed replaceable. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. We all know that you can have paper burger boxes. Anyway, I guess I'm wondering, is this law really that impressive? Right. So that's really important. 
a lot of the media and also the EU people themselves advertise these bands as really unique. But as soon as you dig a bit, you find loads of places that have banned all these things years ago. Rwanda has become one of the cleanest nations in Africa. The plastic ban took effect January 1st in the Indian capital. The government has announced that Jamaica will be banning the items as of January 1, 2019. I spoke to three different researchers and the main thing was that Europe is generally really good at putting its rubbish in its bins and landfills. But the decisions on this directive, it all comes from that app that me and Rosa were using. It's an app where normal people can document litter that's like loose floating around. And there are loads of data points because lots of volunteers go to their local beach and fill in these surveys. Which in itself is really cool. <laughs> yeah, it is. I can't believe how many people are doing this. And they've produced great data. Their plastic collection has pretty much directly informed this directive. But. Ah, uh, there is a but. I thought I could hear one coming. The plastic people are like, you should be concentrating on totally different parameters. What they're really worried about is microplastics, because they're tiny little bits that are mixed in with the sand, they're in every single water source, it's in all of our food, which means we've all got microplastics floating around in our bodies. Gross. But you can barely see them, and you definitely can't pick them up. Like, even when we find them, we have absolutely no way of collecting them. So as it stands, they're just going to be slowly filling up the world. Yeah, that's a really gross image. And even if you do want to look at the most common plastics produced, just walk around the supermarket. Like, if the data had been collected in my local supermarket in Amsterdam, then the law will be way more focused on those bags that, like, rice and aubergines and basically everything comes in. I forgot how everything in Dutch supermarkets is wrapped, like, nine times in plastic. So the plastic researchers you spoke to are like, cool that you're doing this, but you're not really looking in the right direction. Exactly. The most exciting thing about the directive, though, is actually not the sexy balloon stick ban. Nobody has ever used those words together, ever. <laughs> when I asked Sarah from the commission, she was mostly proud about something most of the media haven't really picked up on. Ooh, tell us. So written into the law is this huge paradigm shift that takes a minute to understand. Until now, producers were responsible for things like manufacturing recyclable plastic and stuff like that. This is what they call producer responsibility. EU people say that word a lot. But with this legislation, they're also going to need to pay for the cleanup. So the tobacco industry will have to pay for the cigarette butts to be cleaned up. In, on beaches, in streets, etc. And they will have to contribute to data gathering to calculate um, the, who has to pay what. Now, this might not hit home right away, but it's pretty massive. Like, it means that rubbish collection, which has been considered a taxpayer's cost, would be massively subsidized by these huge companies like Coca-Cola that make all of this waste. A Coca-Cola tobacco company? <laughs> no. <laughs> They're another evil company, Dominic. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, we're going to get so sued. So that means that like Coca-Cola would have to pay the government to count how much rubbish they are making and then pay for how much it costs for them to clean it up as well. That's amazing. Yeah, I'd never even thought about this. We are all paying to clean up rubbish produced by private companies. That's actually pretty crazy. Yeah, I know. And I think Margarita made a great point about this. She was saying that a lot of the time the national governments push back and say they'll make the same legislation on their own terms. 
so they don't need the EU to choose for them. But something like that, like a huge paradigm shift that demands something from big corporations, like would Denmark really do that on its own? I don't think so. You know, we are really safeguarding the life for the benefit of the people and not for the benefit of industry. That's something very important. When you think about it, yes, we all get annoyed sometimes about being told what to do. But this law is kind of amazing because it means that all of these countries are committing to making progress on this thing that will have way more impact than if they decided to do it separately. And then there's also just the idea that we're all getting together to talk about bottle lids in the first place. For me, the EU is the biggest peace project. It is the the only option that we have. You know, I am from Austria, obviously, and when, when I talk to my grandparents, they grew up in a very different Europe. I'm sitting in those meetings and people are uh, negotiating about transport. And I'm like, wow, the fact that we even negotiate about it. You know, we, we have friends all over Europe. A lot of friendships, I think, are thanks to the EU because it makes travel so much easier. It makes it easier to study in different places. And I think that's the basis for new friendship. Oh, like us coming to see each other on the train without our passports. You should still take your passport. <laughs> Anyway, back to straws. Um, I think the straw ban was like fun as a headline. I really wasn't sure I wanted to know about all these complicated councils and amendments and stuff. But when you put it up next to, well, all kinds of murder and war, I would happily talk about plastic spoons for the rest of the year. It's really nice that we're talking about spoons. Now that we've all become dinner party experts in EU law, I think we should just go back to making normal episodes for a bit. But Vera's not finished. I saved us some more EU romance for the very end. And what I also really love about Europe is the way that we embrace languages. Those are, by the way, one of my favorite people in the institutions. It's the interpreters. What they manage to do on a daily basis, I marvel how they do it every day. They are so well prepared. The funniest thing is actually the fish council. The negotiations are forever and you're talking about fish that you've never heard before. You're talking about fish that you've never seen before. So we always get pictures of the fish. I mean, maybe you recognize a tuna or maybe you recognize, I don't know. And then those fish have different names, obviously, in 24 languages. So I love what I love about the EU is a fish council. It makes my life better. It brings more humor to my life. I think it's incredibly funny, but it's also, you know, on a content wise, it's, it's an important. This episode was written and presented by Katz Laszlo with help from Katie Lee and myself, Dominic Kramer. It was funded by the European Cultural Foundation. They support initiatives which promote Europe as an open and democratic space. Thank you also to the generous Patreon supporters who keep this show running with their monthly donations. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.